0: with usually seniors, not necessarily, but usually seniors. And they'll maybe be talking about their life, the life they've lived, their childhood. And and, and I've, I've heard this many times. We didn't know that we were poor. There was always food on the table. There was always clothing. Usually this is kind of depression era talk. And the reason that that people say that, the reason that people don't recognize when they're young that they're poor is because they don't know any rich people. If all you know is the situation you've grown up in, you don't have anything to compare it to. And we find out things about ourselves when we start comparing ourselves to other people. Jesus is going to tell this story about comparison and how it works in the kingdom of God. And it makes a lot of sense that he does so because if you remember the last couple weeks, we've been talking about wealth. Jesus met this rich, young ruler last week, and he was talking about the kingdom of God, and his riches were in the way of getting him access to the kingdom of God, and the disciples were like, well, we gave up everything for you. What do we get? And, and there's this weird comparison game going on. And so Jesus says, and John talked about it last week, he said, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And then he starts in on this story. As we, this is a, it's a pretty simple story, and as we dig into it, Jesus is telling us that the, the way that we are organizing and categorizing people, it just doesn't work the same way in the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at verse 1 of chapter 20, the gospel according to Matthew. Jesus says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. So the kingdom of heaven, God's, God's people, God's plan, God's economy is like this. And he describes a landowner, a man with a vineyard, and he needs people to work in his vineyard. He goes out to the marketplace to find day laborers. The classification of a day laborer was pretty common in the ancient Near East. It would have been somebody who is a free person. They're not a slave. They're not tied to any kind of um, feudal lord kind of thing, just on their own. And these men are going to show up in the marketplace in the morning hoping to get hired. There's a freedom in that, but it's also a pretty destitute dire position to be in. Um, There's no social safety net. And they're literally living from daily paycheck to daily paycheck. I know many of us live from paycheck to paycheck in like two-week increments. It's payday and you've got like all this money and you have to like ration it out over the two weeks. And that can be hard. But the day laborer has nothing. And he gets up in the morning hoping to get a denarius so that he can work for 12 hours, get paid, buy some food for his family, and go home and literally get the daily bread he needs for that day. This is such a precarious position that the Old Testament law specifically says you need to pay your laborers at the end of the workday. It is illegal to pay them the next day because they need to be paid right away because they have nothing. In verse two, after agreeing with the workers on one denarius, he sent them into his vineyard for the day. One denarius is a, normals, a normal wage for a laborer. This is for, uh, typically for 12 hours of work. This is not an eight hour shift with a lunch break and two fifteen minutes at either end. It's 12 solid hours of work. For this coin. This is what the landowner deems fair, and this is what the laborers deem fair. This is what they're looking for. This is what they got up this morning to get. And then in verse 3, when he went out about 9 in the morning, he saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, you also go into my vineyard, and I'll give you whatever is right. And so they went. And About noon and about 3, he went out again and did the same thing. So a little side note here about interpreting parables. I think I've brought this up a few times as we've gone through Matthew, but Jesus is giving us a couple big ideas with these stories he's telling. Every detail of every story is not that important, and it doesn't always make sense. We, this is really easy to see when you read something like one of Aesop's fables. It's like there's a crow and a fox, and the crows, and the, they're talking to each other, and you can go like, wait, foxes can't talk. This is a crazy story, but that's not the point of the story. There's a lesson involved in the story, and many of Jesus' stories are the same way. He, he has details that are just kind of confusing, and if you spend too much time on them, you miss the point of the story. We could be asking, why does the landowner keep going out to the marketplace every three hours? Doesn't he have work in his vineyard to do? How come he doesn't know how many staff he needs for the day, and he has to keep adding more? That's not important. What is important is there's all these extra work The landowner keeps going out to them and keeps assigning them work in the vineyard. He says, I will pay you whatever is right. And so if it's nine o'clock in the morning, I've been waiting around in the marketplace for three hours. There's nine hours of the workday left. Maybe what is right is three quarters of a denarius. It's better than nothing. So I'm going to go out into the vineyard. Verse 6. Then about five, he went and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they said to him. You also go into my vineyard, he told them. So 5 p.m., this is the last hour of the work day. Work ends at six. There's still people out in the marketplace hoping to get hired, hoping for something before the day is done. And the landowner asks a good question. Why hasn't anybody, why are you still here? And they say, well, no one hired us. And I just wonder, like, why, why, why didn't they get hired? I remember being in elementary school. We played a lot of, we played a lot of ball in elementary school. We played football and dodgeball and uh, wall ball and kickball. there were always a couple guys who were really good at the ball, and they got to be the team captains. And everybody else lined up, and the captains took turns picking you. And I was never going to be picked first. I was okay with that. I just didn't want to get picked last. If you've ever been picked last, it's a really sad feeling, because there's two captains, and there's two people left, and the one captain goes... I'll take Jim. And then the other captain goes, well, Zach, I guess you're on our team. Ugh. And I wonder, maybe these guys have been hanging around the marketplace and one of them kind of walks with a limp and the other guy has one eye and, you know, this other guy's got seasonal allergies, so he's sneezing everywhere and like, yeah, nobody wants you. But they're still there at the end of the day. And the landowner has compassion on them and he says, Okay, get in my vineyard and work for the last hour of the day. Nobody wants these men, they are last. Verse 8: When evening came, the owner of the vineyard told his foreman, Call the workers and give them their pay, starting with the last and ending with the first. When those who were hired, about five came, they each received one denarius, a full day's pay. And when the first ones came, they assumed they would get more. But they also received a denarius each. When they received it, they began to complain to the landowner. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the burning heat? He replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on one denarius? Take what's yours and go. I want to give this last man the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because I'm generous? The first men see these these men that have only been working for one hour and they see that they got paid a whole day's wage. Incredibly generous. And they assume, well, if if this guy only worked for an hour and he, got, he gets a denarius and we worked for 12 hours, we should probably get 12 denarius? And I have to say, I feel like that's a pretty fair assumption. I mean, don't you? Like, that makes sense that you'd think, yeah, these people didn't do a whole lot of work and they're getting paid this. We did a lot of work. We'll probably get paid more. And they're surprised when they don't. And they immediately say that's not fair because in their mind and i think in our mind fairness is judged by the condition of the receiver we should all be equal in the way based on what we have done to earn to deserve But the landowner has a very different idea of fairness. He says everybody just gets the same amount. And I have a really hard time with that. Like, does anybody else feel kind of frustrated by this story? Why is this in the Bible? It just doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. What is Jesus saying? All around the world we see situations where some people don't have to pay taxes like other people or some people get employment opportunities that other people don't and scholarships are given to some people and not others. And we think that's not fair. Why are you doing that? And it seems like Jesus is telling a very similar story. It's funny, over the the primary season seems like it was a long time ago, there was a Democratic uh, presidential candidate named Andrew Yang. And his big deal was something called universal basic income. And it's it's a crazy idea. But it basically says that the taxes come in and then every person in the country gets a payment every month, an equal payment. And people on the right are like, well, that's not fair. I don't want to pay for people's, you know, for other people's income. And people on the left are like, well, that's not fair. The billionaires shouldn't get the same amount of money as the poor people. And depending on where you're standing, fairness is kind of a moving target. And then Jesus ends this story with the same thing he started it with. So the last will be first and the first last. The economy of the kingdom of God is completely different than you and I expect it to be. And it's possible to read this as just a story about salvation. That some people come to follow Jesus when they're children. And they live 80 years faithfully following Christ And they come to the end of their life, and they get ushered into the kingdom of God, and they get rewarded, well done, good and faithful servant, and that's great. But then other people live their entire lives in wickedness and debauchery and sin. And then on their deathbed, they finally go, oh no, I need to make my peace with God. And they come to a saving faith in Christ, and then they die. And you could read that into this story. Both people get eternal life. One has worked much longer. But I don't think that's what this is about because Jesus has been talking about money and possessions and relationships and influence and power. And he's still talking about those things. And if the kingdom of heaven is like this, we have to remember that the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven isn't some place far away that we go to when we die. The kingdom of heaven was inaugurated when Jesus came to earth. He set his kingdom up in the heart of his people, and wherever his people are gathered, the kingdom of heaven is present. And so we can read this as representatives, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and go, okay, how does that affect us? How does that affect our community of faith? How does that affect the way we interact with others? And I think it gets a lot deeper and a lot more challenging when we do that. See, God gives good gifts to his people. If you are a Christian this morning, if you have been adopted into God's family, if you have bowed your knee to Jesus and said, Jesus, you are my Lord. I want to follow you. I want you to shape me into a new person. You've been given eternal life you've been given the holy spirit you've been given supernatural gifts from god and not one of us if we are christians has been left out but the thing is god doesn't owe you anything just like the day laborer goes to the market and hopes to get hired he he has nothing without the landowner's generosity If anything, the fact that the landowner keeps going back to the marketplace to look for people is a symbol of God's generosity. God doesn't owe us anything, and yet he pursues us. He comes to get us. He looks for us. We are all invited to participate in his kingdom, but we don't often focus on that. We focus on each other, right? Why did they get paid the same as we did? We worked harder. Don't you know how unfair that is? And we look at money and popularity and status and physical beauty and health and family and all number of things, and we say, like, I'm, I'm here, but this person is here. That's not fair. God, why did you, why did you give this person that? family, and you didn't give it to me. Why Why does this person make so much more money than I do? Don't you know that I could use that? Why don't, ha- why don't I have the abilities that this person does? Why haven't I been given the opportunities that that person has? It's not fair. And the landowner at the end of this parable says something important. He asks the question, are you jealous? because I'm generous? Jealousy is an interesting thing. Jealousy is not envy. Envy is, I want what you have. Jealousy is, I don't want you to have what you have. If I was envious of Jeff Bezos, I would want to be a billionaire. If I'm jealous of him, I want him to lose all his money and we get jealousy i think for two reasons at least two reasons that i want to talk about and the first one is pride i think we're all just a little bit proud inside you know what i i deserve more i I'm, I'm better i'm better than you and i'm better than you and i and god should recognize that i'm better Verse 12 is what, is what these men said. These last men put in one hour, and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of the day's work and the great, the burning heat. We've worked hard for our money. We're better than them. We deserve more. And that attitude lingers inside of our hearts often, even if we, even if we are wise enough not to articulate it in polite company, right? The other motivation for jealousy, I think, is fear. We're afraid that there's not enough. The landowner says, are you jealous because I'm generous? Because I'm giving away more than you think I should be giving away? See, when I'm I'm afraid, when I believe that resources are scarce, I don't believe that there's enough. If you get something, there won't be enough for me. The only way I can succeed is if you fail. And Jesus is pushing back against that assumption. We serve a generous God, and there's always enough. When we compare ourselves to others, we get our eye off of the only person that we should be focusing on, and that's Jesus. Because when we compare ourselves to Jesus, Jesus, who is the first willingly volunteered to be the last, Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself and became a servant. We miserably fail over and over and over again to live up to the standards that Christ lays out for us, and yet... Because he has come after us, because he has saved us, he's given us more than we can even comprehend. If we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, we we should be comparing ourselves to Jesus. We should be looking at him and, and recognizing that his standards is impossibly high. And he's impossibly gracious to let us come alongside even when we fail to lift us up, to teach us, to grow us, to help us through. In The book Alice in Wonderland, there's this scene where Alice finds herself in the ocean with all of these other creatures. And they're swept up on the beach, and they're all wet. And there's a dodo bird, and the dodo bird says, in order to get us dry, we should have a caucus race. And so all of these creatures just start running in a variety of different directions, in circles and back and forth, and nobody really knows what the rules are. And they run for like half an hour. And the book says when they had been running half an hour or so, they were quite dry again. The dodo suddenly called out, The race is over. And they all crowded around it, panting, and asked, But who has won? This question the dodo could not answer without a great deal of thought and it sat for a long time with one finger pressed upon its forehead while the rest waited in silence. At last the dodo said, everybody has won and all must have prizes. Alice in Wonderland is meant to be absurd and we hear that story and we think that's absurd. Everybody has won and everyone must have prizes. Our culture has trained us to see that that is not the way the world works. You get what you deserve by working hard, and if you don't, you shouldn't get anything. And we push back against this idea. But the kingdom of God ends up being completely different than the culture that we find ourselves in. In the kingdom of God, Jesus has won, and all must have prizes. Jesus has won and he gives gifts to all of his people. We can, we can read this story and just be like, yeah, some people serve God for a long time and then they get the inheritance of the kingdom. Some people serve God for a little bit of time and then they get the inheritance of the kingdom and, and just kind of brush it off. But I would challenge you not to let this story about the kingdom of heaven be some spiritual truth out there somewhere. The kingdom of heaven is right here and right now amongst the lives of its people. And if we, if we look at this sort of ethic and say, get, giving people good things that they don't deserve, that's, that's impractical, that's impossible, that can't be done we, we just disregard the word of God. But instead, if we start here and go, okay, this is the kind of life that Christ has given us and this is the kind of life that he wants us to bless other people with. How can we figure out how to make that happen? It's gonna be, it's gonna be messy, it's gonna be imperfect, but how can we live lives like this among the people around us? I often fail as a parent. Uh, I am not, not very good at it. But I, I want to tell you a, one of my small success stories, I think. A couple weeks ago, my daughter, Nora, was having a really hard time. Hard enough that, like, she was, she was pushing back against Mom, something fierce. And I got a call. I was at work. Hey, can you can you pick up Nora? I just can't can't do it right now. And so, and she didn't, there were plans for the day, fun plans, and so she she missed out on the plans because I came and got her and I took her to my office. And I said, sit down in a chair. Here's a book. I got work to do. She was pretty upset about it. She was grieving that she missed out on fun. She started getting hungry. I said, Well, it's not lunchtime. You're gonna have to wait. But when it was lunchtime, I said, come on, we're going to get in the car. And so we got in the car, and then I took her down the street, and we got tacos. And I took her to Union, and I got her an Italian soda. And she was just thrilled to death by this. And I said, do you know why I'm giving you these things? And she said, I, no, I don't know why. And I said, because even though it's been a really hard day and you've made some really poor choices... Mommy and daddy love you no matter what. And we want to give good things to you. Church, I believe that's the heart of God for us. Right? We we make bad choices a lot. (laughs) But God loves us so much and we don't deserve it and yet he gives us over and over and over abundant blessings. And so when we are tempted to look at others that have a different set of blessings, let's not compare ourselves to them. Let's not grieve because the Lord hasn't treated us all fairly, but rejoice because God has treated us well. Because in coming to the earth as a man, living a perfect life, dying on the cross, and rising from the dead to secure our salvation, Jesus has won, and we all get the prizes. That's what we reflect on when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion. And as we, as we sing, as we remind ourselves of who Jesus is, we have an opportunity not to think about how we've been wronged this week, not to think about how we wish we were uh, healthier or happier or wealthier or whatever, but to remember we've been given so much in Christ. We've been given life. We've been given a new community, a new hope. And I would just ask you to take the communion back to your seat and ask the Lord to show you where your values, your, the things that our culture has infused in you are out of line with the way the kingdom of God works. Because over and over and over again, we see that Jesus' idea of how the world's supposed to work is very different from the world outside. I want us to be people that that are challenged by that and are bold enough to step out and say, okay, I'm going to try to live that life. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how to do it, uh, but I'm going to fumble my way through it in the midst of community and figure out what it looks like to love others the way Jesus says the kingdom of God and the citizens of the kingdom of God are supposed to.